Welcome to Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here, very excited today to be joined by Dr. Dakota Irby, who's a professor of education at the University of Illinois, Chicago. He wrote a book called Stuck Improving Racial Equity and School Leadership. It's an interesting, timely, and dare I say provocative read. Before we get into any of that, I want to welcome Dakota to the show. Welcome to Trending in Education. Thank you, Mike. I appreciate the opportunity. Very yeah. excited to have the conversation with you. Yeah, likewise. When we first have a guest on the show, we like to hear in their own words, their origin story, what got you to this point in your professional life. Can you catch us up a little bit on who you are and how you got to this point in your career? Sure, absolutely. I'll just backtrack a little bit and tell you the point that I'm at. I'm an associate professor at University of Illinois Chicago. Here in Chicago, my entire career has been in a higher ed. I grew up in South Carolina in a town called Greenville, South Carolina, where I attended numerous different schools. Grew up in a household with my mother and my two sisters and attended many different schools, private schools, neighborhood schools, very suburban high school, which I'll talk about connects to some of my interests in the book. And I basically got here to where I'm at through the encouragement of a lot of people. It seemed that I was either lucky, blessed, favored, however you want to describe it. Mm -hmm. Most of the time when I was at an institution, a school, it's particularly when I got to high school and college, I always had one or two people who took the interest in me and supported me and asked me and encouraged me to stretch out beyond what I even knew was possible. So with that good fortune, I attended the College of Charleston in South Carolina. I majored in economics there. I was very involved in like Black Student Union. I had some great professors and some people who I worked with who encouraged me to apply to graduate school. And my response was, what is graduate school? <laughs> and they were just like, you could do it. I ended up applying to a few graduate schools and ended up at Temple University in Philadelphia, where I majored in geography and urban studies for my master's. My mm -hmm. intention and hope was to go into community development. And, and during that time, I started volunteering with high school students, just like it after school programs. And then I found my way into education as yeah. a career. From that experience, working with high schoolers, trying to help them get into college and seeing the tremendous amount of barriers for even students and families who did everything textbook like they were supposed to do and things still didn't work out for them. Yeah. Um, my sense of, of frustration led me to pursue a PhD in urban education. Mm -hmm. um, from there, I entered into the academy where I've been since about 2010. Yeah. Yeah. And then through that period of looking at educational policy as an associate professor, you need to continue to publish. That's what led you to the the subject of Stuck Improving, which also one of the things that I found quite interesting about it was that it was a suburban school looking at issues of racial equity and school leadership in the context of what has traditionally been a predominantly white suburban demographic, which is now blending in black and brown children and families and studying this topic that is, is hugely relevant, I like to say zeitgeisty at least once an episode, the conversation around racial equity and how it can be taught best and how it can make a difference frequently is told through the context of urban schools or, or maybe even the flip side where we've had some interesting conversations about rural education, which is a whole nother dimension of this. But what I found really interesting was 
the focus on racial equity and school leadership through the context of a suburban school. That's what we're talking about in Stuck Improving. Can you catch our listeners up on what the book is and, and what drove you to write it? Yeah, absolutely. Stuck Improving Racial Equity School Leadership is a book for a pretty broad audience. I actually wrote it for a relatively broad audience. I think the central kind of core group are people who work in schools and people who are interested in schools and particularly how schools can better serve and affirm black and brown children, socio-emotionally, academically, so on and so forth. So the book, as you mentioned, it stems from a seven-year study that I conducted in a suburban school, one school in the Midwest. And basically the school had an influx of, of black and brown children. Um, the district had an influx of black and brown children. And this is a pattern we're seeing nationwide, right? Yeah. Like the demographics of the United States are changing. They're changing rapidly, particularly with Latinx students, brown students. This school district, this school was experiencing racial and demographic changes relatively quickly. And the teaching force was not changing, which is also a trend. It's not changing at the same rate, rather. So most of the teachers were white teachers who went to school with white people and who had white neighbors. And all of a sudden have the professional responsibility to provide an education to children who they are not like. Yeah. And uh, so that's where the book comes from. It started. I, I didn't ever, it's interesting that you mentioned most of the focus is on urban schools when it comes to racial equity yeah. and diversity. I didn't anticipate conducting research in a suburban school when I stumbled into the project. Yeah. Um, the main way that suburban schools have gone about trying to improve their equity for in the last 10 years is to hire consultants. Yep. Um, firms that'll come in and kind of like help them do, you know, equity audits, curriculum audits, choose yep. these books, so on and so forth. And it was interesting because a lot of times I would get reach outs from districts or have conversations with districts and we spent this amount of money on a consultants and we don't see anything, anything has changed. Yeah. So in this particular instance, the folks asked me, would I be willing to do some consulting with them? And I was just like, I, I don't know that I know how to help you all. And I was like, these, the problems that you all are facing are longstanding. They're deeply entrenched. Like racism is, is yeah. deeply entrenched. And I said, I don't know exactly how to help you all, but I'd be willing to uh, partner with them, work on this together. If the return that I got was the opportunity to learn about what you all do, how it works, how people experience it. Yeah. And that's how we got to the partnership, which lasted for, for five years. And then two years after that, I did retrospective interviews with members of the school community mm -hmm. to find out what mattered the most over that time with them. So that's what the book is about. It focuses on this idea of, um, organizational racial resources and organizational capacity for improvement. The central argument that I make in the book is that most predominantly white school communities don't have the capacity yeah. to actually enact the reforms and provide the kinds of education people want them to provide. Right. Like around children, they just, despite their best efforts, really don't have what it takes to do it. Yeah. I know that's a provocative statement, <laughs> but it's what I learned, but what a lot of them said, and the thing that's important to understand is that an organization, a group of people who lack the capacity and the resources to do something, can't do it. If somebody asks you to build a house, you have a hammer, only a hammer to build the house with. Yeah. You're not going to have the same capacity as someone who has a hammer and a saw, a drill. Yeah. That group is going to be uh, better able to build a house. Now the people can build something. Yeah. The other group is going to be able to go faster. They're going to build something that's going to be solid. It's going to be stronger. Mm -hmm. if they have those resources. And what I argue is that we need to pay more attention to 
the resources that organizations have at their disposal to actually enact the kind of um, changes that people are calling for. Yeah. And the work is hard work. It's psychological work. It's discomforting. There is a section where you're talking about curated white racial discomfort, which is saying there will be pain. It's like going to the gym. Pain is just weakness leaving the body, you know? So, you know, you're going to have to go through this emotional trauma. How much people want to state the level of pain that they're going to go through and also the level to which they're going to earnestly commit to actually go through the pain versus keep it at arm's length. You outline the full spectrum really from the, if you have the least capacity, here's some suggestions, read some books, do some sort of lighter weight stuff to really more the, the higher end that you really can commit to making this change. How were you able to understand that full spectrum when you were going deep on, on the one school? Yeah. A lot of it is the time that I spent. One of the things that was a huge thing that I learned is that the time horizon is, is substantial. And most of the books, most of the folks writing about issues of racial equity and change in organizations, the time horizon of their research is typically about two to three years. Yeah. What I often tell people is that I would have left this in two to three years. I would have wrote a book about complete failure, <laughs> chaos, you know, but I stayed longer and I studied the school longer. And actually when we established the MOU for the project, we talked about four to five years and we know from all different kinds of organizational improvement that change within an organization, substantial change, that you start to see the impacts of what was done in years one, two, three. Yeah. In years like four, five, and six, we know that there's like an implementation lag where things go south before they come back up and that sort of thing. It's just, that's the nature of the learning that has to happen within the organization. We're going to implement this change and then eight tanks, Yeah, you know, when things build bad and there's turnover and people move and then you see the actual benefits of A come four or five years later. So I knew that going in and that's what started to happen. Time was the big factor that differentiates this study from most of the research about organizational change. Yeah. In particular about issues of racial equity. There's some reasons that I think that's the case, but so I was able to see how different people learned over time. Yeah. There's a part in the book, in the final chapter, where I really start to bring a lot of the learning and a lot of the reactions and reflections that white people in particular had about their experiences and on the topic of curated white racial discomfort, which curated is the key word here. Yeah. Uh, because it can be organized in a way where it's not traumatic. If people know what they're coming into, if they understand that it's mm -hmm. going to be people, you name it, yeah. it's not going to feel good. You're not going to be able to sleep. You're going to need to talk to your people that outside of work, right? About this, those, all of those things are the things that the participants told me were the most important and the most impactful and mm -hmm. those not happen for them, for their community, they wouldn't be where they are. Yeah. So I think time is the big piece, but then we also people who I kept in touch with and left the school, like during year three, Yeah, which is like, I can't take this, it's too chaotic. I'm out of here. And they had very different perspectives than the people who stayed six years later. They had a very different perspective than the people who uh, came, who stayed for six years. One of the most powerful things is the number of white people who said things like as painful as that was, and as horrible as it was one of the best things that has happened to me. <laughs> it's it's obvious yes. bounds. Yeah. And in fact, many of them said that if we're going to have like other white people need to experience that level of pain. Yeah. It's come too. And, and then there were some people who didn't experience that, but they knew about it and said that 
if they could do one of the questions that I asked is like, if we could do anything over, what would you do? And many of them said, not really much, but if there was one thing they would want more white people to experience the discomfort, yeah. because going through that and working through that is what helped them change on that. Yeah. So yeah. Time, time, time was the big factor that what I learned and what I was able to write about. Yeah, that makes sense. And the exposure to difference or the lack of exposure to difference is, is one of the main problems that we're trying to solve in the educational ecosystem where white kids are only seeing white teachers. That's a problem. Bigger problem is black and brown kids are only seeing white teachers or a majority of them are only seeing white educators. So one way in which this problem can be solved is by diversifying the education pipeline and getting more black and brown educators into schools who you would presume would be able to contribute their perspective and ideally round out the the diversity training in a, a more holistic way. But absent that, you need to go outside and admit that as white educators, you're not necessarily in the right place to to do this the right way. At the same time, there's been a lot of arguments lately about this type of training gone wrong. It, it, it sounds like in the school that you were in, even though it's it's hard and you get incremental progress, but you're stuck improving, which is the title of the book, that's about the most you can hope for. And then in other contexts, it actually fails and there's a backlash and a rejection. And because you don't get those quick wins in year one, two, three, the program gets pulled or for political reasons, school boards and, and whatnot, things pivot. How do you stay inspired? How do you bring hope to folks who are trying to navigate all this? Because it's really complex and it's hard and it can blow up in your face. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things that I mentioned was the curated piece, which early on, I didn't have as much of an appreciation for. And now I think that the curated piece is really important, which the moment that we're in now is very different than 2013. Yeah. When we started this process, we know a lot more now. And I think that the field and the people who are doing this work have come pretty far. But yeah, and so the curated piece is really important. And in I think that the thing that sustains people, at least in, the, in this particular case, what sustained people was, like you mentioned, kind of those small wins. I call them racial equity breakthroughs. Yeah. Um, and in particular, the ability to make the connection between how they're changing their practice or behavior actually impacts, in this particular case, a student or a young person, yeah. even a few of them. So one of the things that you know, I write about in the book is that we had small things as well as big, large kind of structural changes to happen in the process. Yeah. And so some of the small things would be like what we call these uh, racial equity challenges, like these challenges that we would ask people to do. It might be something as simple like identify this one student who has been stigmatized in the school since like ninth grade and nobody likes students. Get a group of teachers in for two weeks, three weeks, pour into that Jamal point to Jamal, have something positive to say about Jamal, like overwhelm, mm -hmm. not only Jamal, but overwhelm yourself yeah. with how well you treat Jamal and see what happens mm -hmm. for three weeks. Mm -hmm. And so we would ask people to do those sorts of things. And one of the things that I learned is that I'd stop asking people to believe in Jamal and I would ask people to treat Jamal well, treat Jamal like Jamal is going to college and like Jamal is going to be whatever he aspires to be. And once they started to change their behaviors and we did all of this as like 
test, right? It's a test, right? Yeah. We kind of like test to see what happens. Mm-hmm. And in those situations, um, Jamal, the relationship with, with Jamal changed. Yeah. Right? Right. The same thing would happen at the classroom level. Try this in your classroom. I know you don't like your third period class. Yeah. Try this for three weeks. Try it this way. And folks would try different things and their behaviors actually produce different results. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's what the, the other thing that kept people going was the testimonials and hearing from the successes of other people. And what I found is that leaders of organizations, people who are interested in learning have to do a better job of being able to formally provide the spaces and opportunities for people to talk about what they're learning. Yeah. Tried and so on and so forth. And doing that was really important because teachers learn from teachers. If you're in an organization, like you pick up your best ideas or your worst ideas from the person whose office is next door to you, right? Right, right. Or the person that you're in a meeting with. And so the idea is the bad ideas float through organization informally, right? It happens in the parking lot when people are, it happens after the meeting when people are planning. So it requires a lot of intention to think about what are the practices that we see that work well, that benefit black and brown children, who's engaged in those practices, who's engaged in those behaviors. You'd be very intentional about providing the space and the opportunities for those folks to talk about what it is they're doing. And most importantly, to have people talk about how they've changed and what their experiences were to compel them to change. And that was one of the things that Really, uh, and I talk about it as this idea of proliferation of practices in the book. Mm-hmm. And this is where people will hear somebody say something. Here's what I tried in my room. Or either they find out about it and then they go try it too. And that was the thing that gave some people inspiration because they realized that when you change your behaviors, you get different outcomes. Yeah. You get different yeah. results. And one of the biggest things that I really learned is that beliefs are really important and you have to believe. But the pathway to changing beliefs in behaviors and experiences. Mm-hmm. And if people behave in a kind of way that gives them a different experience, they begin to believe differently. And one of the critiques, and one of the things that I think I used to do when I, before I actually carried out this research project for so many years, is I used to come in and I would start talking about like, you have to believe. Mm. I don't do that anymore. I do think you have to believe. Yeah. But my starting point is you have to behave differently. You have mm-hmm. to do it differently. Yeah. And if you start to do things differently, you're going to see results that are going to shape and change your beliefs. One of the trends that I've been noticing on the show more lately is talking about mindsets as opposed to skill sets, the importance of mindset and also the importance of school culture. Cause it did seem like you being there committing to partner with them to get to a better place. In some ways, that's the, the meta lesson of this story. Can you get some continuity with people you trust who will try to affect a different experimental mission-based, hopeful, emotionally supportive. I mean, that's, that's the next piece I want to get to in a world where everybody ain't got time for that. Like right. how do you effectively get the buy-in to do the emotional work that is necessary to teach racial equity and these other topics in ways that will actually resonate with the kids who need it. Any reflections on that? Yeah, you said it. I think the reason that the book is titled Stuff Improving is that I really try to write in a way that surfaces the complexity, the challenges, and the dilemmas of attempting to do work towards racial equity in a society that is 
racially inequitable and it's mm-hmm. hostile to black and brown people. It's racist. Um, and so it's difficult. And as you mentioned, there's this dilemma between, yes, people need the opportunity to learn. If you think about racial learning in particular through both, we want to say our parents give us direct instruction, right? And what we read, what we've experienced, black children in particular coming in with a host of knowledge resources that white adults don't even have. Yeah. And then many white adults may get in college if they go to a liberal arts college, but maybe will never go into an institution that gives them a sense of racial knowledge over the duration of their life. Yeah. So you're in a situation where you have black and brown children who have racial knowledge, even if they can't name it, it's like this particular thing. They're not saying that I understand how white supremacy operates, but they have yeah. a kind of understanding of, I see what you're doing to me. I don't have the words to explain it, but I know what's happening here. Yeah. I'm not putting effort into your class. And understanding that many white professionals haven't had access to those learning opportunities. Mm-hmm. And so the dilemma is the white folks need to have access to the learning opportunities. But in the meantime, as you mentioned, black children and parents speak up time. Yeah. White folks to spend learning about right. it. Right, right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. But then the other dilemma is what they still need to learn about it. And right. so this creates the kind of tension around, you know, how the work moves forward. And another dilemma is how involved should black folks be? So you mentioned about me being there. It was interesting. So when I finished the first draft of the book, I had members of the school community read what I wrote. And I did focus groups with a bunch of different people. And they read the book. And one of the things that these were all white folks said, we didn't realize, because I write about this a little bit in the book, we didn't realize what you were going through. Mm-hmm. Coming to school on a regular basis, experiencing these things. And I write about this one kind of incident at a board meeting because this board meeting stuff is, it's been going on some, uh, maybe not at the same scale, but I write about that and they were just very reflective and saying, wow, we did we were so busy learning that we didn't think about the impact and our opportunities to learn were having on you and we're just like, wow, that hurts us. We hate to hear that, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Um, and so the question becomes like, how much do, you know, black people put their emotional well-being yeah. um, on the line for or white people's learning purposes? But also, again, the dilemma is understanding that white people benefit tremendously from having black and brown people accelerate their learning. For sure. So those are the kind of dilemmas that I really try to explore in the book, try to really point out the dilemmas and things that people need to think about and anticipate. So anticipate these dilemmas, anticipate wrestling with how much you're relying on your black colleagues and you, for your black colleagues anticipate wrestling with like my white colleague doesn't get it mm-hmm. while also realizing that you could be a person that helps them get it right and then, and, yeah and then weighing your own self-care the whole tagging in a white friend to talk to another white person about racial issues was something that was much more top of mind maybe a year ago and that's the other thing i wanted to get from you is more like contemporizing the conversation, looking at the awakening that that happened in 2020, and then some of the backlash that we've really been seeing in 
2021. Everybody's under stress and radicalizations through social media and polarization and all this stuff. Again, how does the community have time for this when public health is also front of mind? It's just a very fraught time, but are there any ways in which you can bring the conversation to the present day, maybe a little bit of reflection for you around, had you done this research, say like 2018 to 2022, how might it have been different? How do you think things are are being transformed by the times we're living in or not? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think that the social media, when this came in, this book, when I started the Obama administration was still yeah, this is a term to Obama and it was also on the heels of Trayvon Martin mm-hmm. and George Zimmerman verdict. Mike Brown was killed in the span of this. A lot of this, yeah. similar things were happening. Mm-hmm. So I think that some of the things that you mentioned that are different is that it was during the pandemic 2020 when George Floyd was killed. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fact that it was during the pandemic and people were at home, they were glued to the TV. Yeah were available to go out to the streets because people weren't at work. So right. the conditions were very different. And I think it just allowed people to choose where they were, choose their side, see Fox, MSNBC, and get yeah. really deeply entrenched in whatever that was. And we saw that kind of, I think, hard of ideas. So I think one of the things that is likely different is that people weren't as hardened in their ideas when we started this particular project. Yeah, And I think that the other part is that the Obama administration, the Office of Civil Rights from the Department of Education sent out a lot of dear colleague letters. And we're really making issues of racial disparities and racial equity mm-hmm. a part of the conversation, not in a very, it wasn't in a forceful way, but raising it to a level of importance. And so I think at this particular time, there was a curiosity about what could be done. Curiosity, I think around Trayvon Martin and the kind of yeah. Sadness, Black Lives Matter was relatively new at this point. It's like the beer also, summit, right? Right. Yeah. Right. yeah. yeah. It was, it yeah. was, uh, it was, so there was a lot of curiosity. So I think that the, the political context in which this began was very different. But I did see during the process of conducting the research, the 2016 election. So I write about that in the book too. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Very prominent thing. But so we started to see some of the heart, even within the school. Yeah. Where I write about how a lot of the white students had Make America MAGA hats, Make America Great Again. Yeah. Um, how that made and there's this issues of can they wear that to school? Well, right. it's pretty more an Obama shirt to school. Yes, we can. So what can people wear to school? What does that mean? Yeah. Those sorts of issues really started to surface. And what I see now is a hardening of those things that were introduced in 2016, even amongst, especially amongst parents, but also amongst students and students are followed oftentimes with their parents. Yeah. I stated that. But I think one of the things that was promising that is promising is that the young people at this particular school and young people now, they have different ideas. I think that they want to see a different world. They have a different idea about what is just and what is right and many adults. Yeah. And opening up the book writing about students leading the implementation of a professional development series for the school. This was something the students led and I started there, but that is actually the end of the story, right? Yeah. They were able to do this. They had the white folks in this school community, teachers, parents had the wherewithal, had the capacity for black and brown and white students to lead the professional learning of adults. Yeah. 
in a way that adults lack the capacity to. Yeah. And so I think that there's something still um, that in the school board meetings and that sort of thing, a lot of times young people's voices and perspectives and young people's leadership gets drowned out. And I think that if we were looking at classrooms as opposed to board meetings, yeah, the conversations, the curiosity, the commitments would be different than what we see in board. That's a guess. Yeah, that's good stuff. We always like to hear from our guests, what else is capturing your imagination these days? It's an interesting time. What are you noticing these days? What's capturing your imagination? Any Anything you want our listeners to be aware of? I think the thing that is, is capturing my imagination is the, especially since the economic shutdown, basically from this, and from the pandemic, seeing the emergence of like collectives and cooperatives and people working cooperatively and thinking differently about their labor, and in particular, because I'm so interested in organizations around how people are rethinking the design of and organizing and creating organizations that are like flatter. They don't have the kind of same hierarchy that we're so accustomed to in a capitalist society like ours. And this kind of even goes back to the idea of high school students working in the class, working with their teachers to create the professional development, learning opportunities for adults in the building. Yeah. Um, and Students working right alongside members of the community provide learning reflects a much kind of flatter understanding of who has knowledge, mm -hmm. who can create opportunities for people to learn and really thinking deeply about those sorts of things. And I think that there's a lot that my field education can learn from people that are organizing themselves in flatter, more deeply democratic ways than when I say democratic. I'm thinking more about deep democracy in terms of the democratization of knowledge mm -hmm. uh, and those sorts of things. So that people aren't just voting, but they have a deep base of knowledge by which to make decisions from. Yeah. And that thing is, so I'm, I'm very fascinated in those sorts of things. And they're really helping me to imagine and be hopeful and think about what flatter kind of relations can mm -hmm. um, look like. And I even think about that with well, children. And, right. you know, now how can we make these decisions? Of course, adults have wisdom, right? Sure. That's what I like to talk about a lot about, but adults don't know it all. Right. Um, and people in positions of power don't know it all. Right. Um, so how did that look to recognize what children have, but not only recognize it, but you create the kinds of organizational practices and routines that allow what they know to really surface in a way that can influence adults. Yeah. And also how much the power structures are hierarchical and about authority versus a more grassroots emergent and about other goals. And that's where even the future of work is the other place that we like to go to on the show as well, where to be an effective worker, employee, human, you need to learn to work with differences. And that's very much something that we are seeing increasingly in the private sector, where work cultures that are not genuinely inclusive are losing in many cases to those that are. Do you see any lessons or parallels maybe to be drawn between what's happening in the educational system that you've been focusing more on and then outside of that in terms of how organizations are, are trying to respond to some of the, the cultural problems that have surfaced in the last year or two? Yeah, sure. Um, I do think there's parallels. The book is organized by each chapter focused on organizational racial resource. And I think that Many organizations have the resources and I, in the book, try to articulate how they're either dormant, being cultivated or fully flourishing. 
Yeah. Um, and so I think that a lot of organizations without using the exact same language that I'm using here are focused on things like black and brown influential presence. Yeah. And by black and brown influential presence, they should be relating the concept that the, the influence and the power is just as important as like the presence and the representation. So yeah. you have 20 black employees, right? And you want 40, you get 40 that are still at the same level and have minimal influence or either not the opportunity to promote an influence. So I see a lot of organizations drawing on some of those concepts. A lot of organizations are creating like study groups for white employees, to yeah. understand white ways of being and that sort of thing. Uh, how whiteness is problematic for black folks and that sort of thing, brown folks. And so there's a lot of the concepts, the inquiry, the leadership, right? A different approach to leadership. Yeah. And a lot of these um, things, like, for example, continuous improvement is something that has long existed within a lot of organizations. Yep. However, what I focus on here is thinking about like reach conscious inquiry, right? Reach conscious continuous improvement. Yeah. You're really assuming that the problems are racial problems or problems of racism, unless you find or learn otherwise. The other, the default is typically that it's probably not. Right. It's probably not an issue of racism. Until we discover it. So what I argue is that you should assume that it is. Mm -hmm. So you discover that it's not. Right. It is always not, but oftentimes it is. And it just allows us to be able to identify what we call problems of practice within organizations. Yeah. They're really focusing on helping us understand and discern racial patterns. And my argument is that if you can discern those racial patterns and understand those, for example, in hiring, you can then come up with ways to actually disrupt, you know, the retention or poor retention. Yeah. So. Interesting stuff. My wheels are turning, but, but as we're getting closer to conclusion here, what takeaways would you recommend for our listeners? If they're going to come out of this conversation, are there any recommendations or perspectives or ways that they could maybe come out of this conversation with some takeaways? Number one is difficult and hard, right? To break patterns that are foundational to our society. I think that's the number one thing is that it's hard. I think another thing that we didn't really touch on a lot here is the importance of operating, understanding that you might not get the outcome that you want or think you will get, mm -hmm. but that if you do something differently, you will get something different. And so being mindful of possibilities that we aren't even fully aware of. And that was something I learned from, again, doing the retrospective interviews, people talking about, it was hard for them to commit because they didn't fully understand what they were going to get from it. Yeah. But then they would say things, but what I have now or what I know now, what I experience now is so much greater than what I could have even imagined. Mm -hmm. So I think that is an important thing is to operate based on possibility that if we do things differently, if we treat one another different, if we create systems and structures that create more opportunities and are more equitable, it will get something different on the other side. Of it. Mm -hmm. Although we don't know exactly what that is. Yeah. Uh, we might have some ideas, but it'll be something different. Yeah. And realizing that something different will also produce the desire to address whatever that issue is. And that gets us into the cycle of stuck improvement. I think the key takeaway is that I want people to understand is that the conceptual idea of stuck improving means that when you improve, you're going to have a different kind of consciousness and knowledge that's going to make you want to improve more because you're going to see things, you're going to see problems anew. 
Yeah. Um, what those problems will look like are going to differ for different groups and different organizations and so on and so forth. But mm-hmm. it'll be the ability to know that it's still worthwhile because you're placing whatever that new is against what you already know. And so if you aren't happy with what currently is, yeah, then you have an opportunity, I would say a responsibility, if, especially if you're an educator, to try to disrupt the patterns of racial injustice that we see in schools. And as you try to do that, you're going to see something on the other side that might also then make you say, we're not done. Yeah. And that was on a pattern to continuously improving while also realizing how hard it is, which makes us feel stuck. Yeah. So that's the, that's the concept of the book. Yeah. Know? Yeah. Um, it's complex. So systemic challenges don't change on a dime. They take dedication. They take perspective. They take folks like Dr. Dakota Irby, who wrote the stuck improving. Thank you so much for joining us on the show, Dakota. Thank you. And for our listeners, hopefully you enjoyed what you heard. You'll get more information about Dakota and his book on the show page for this episode. If you like what you're hearing, subscribe, share the good word, tell a friend. We'll be back again soon. This is Trending in Education. 